and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Ridgeway and this is Talking VTE number 35 for the 29th of November 2012. And I'm here face to face with uh, Robin J. Hi everyone. And perhaps we'll go around the room from Google Plus uh, left to right with uh, Alex. Good morning, good evening, good night. Um, here from sunny Canberra and um, very happy to be here. And Bill. Good evening, everyone. And uh, I'm signing in from my little studio environment here up in Darwin. And uh, great to just be invited to join in. Fabulous to have you. you. I think it's been quite a while since you've been on an episode. Yeah, it's been been a big world tour of late, you know, with the release of the album. So we've been pretty busy. And uh, of course, uh, one of our regulars, um, Michael Coughlin. Apparently looking sultry in sultry Adelaide. Hi, everybody. Well, fabulous. We um, thought that we'd try to get in at least one uh, last Talking VTE for 2012. And uh, the year has uh, accelerated um, at an enormous pace. Uh, so. Um, we're nearly at the end, really. So maybe we can uh, go around and do a bit of a, a round roundtable catch-up or uh, the things that... Uh, oh, talking about things, it was just a possum that ran over our roof and gave me a terrible fright. <laughs> big ears. <laughs> big ears it wants to be in the podcast. Uh, yeah, big, big ears, for those listening, uh, is a, is a, a, a household possum that's um, adopted us. And he uh, is fond to coming out when when uh, everyone's had a few whiskies and uh, lights up a cigar and uh, Big Ears is there to uh, join the company. Anyway, that aside, you can catch the Flickr feed 34 Miranda Street for pictures of Big Ears and other assorted uh, friends. Uh, but anyway, perhaps, perhaps Alex, we can start with you. Because I know you were, you populated the wiki quite copiously there with uh, topics. <coughs> oh, S. Ridgeway, wasn't it? Yes. Um, I'm just trying to recall what I put in there. I think it was... Um... <laughs> oh, Alison. Well, while you're recalling your, uh, your entries and finding the wiki, perhaps we'll uh, use Alison. Hi, Alison. Good evening. Hi there. Fabulous that you should join us. We've only, we've only just begun. We've just finished the uh, introductions. Excellent. Just at the right time then. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and and um, you're... Alison's also looking sultry in that. Yes. <laughs> well, we're rather pleased... Looking to balmy Adelaide. Yes, well, we're rather pleased that you've come with a shirt on. Some other members have come with a suitably dressed. My mother brought me up well. She did. <laughs> and I, I did put a plus 18 on the Google Hangout just in case, so covered. I'm just going to shut the door, I'll be back. <laughs> oh, that bad already. Right. Alex, have you I'll gathered your yes. thoughts for the roundup? That's right, I put into the wiki... Um, 
little posium. So um, there was a consortium of people that turned up at Moodle Posium. In fact, it was very well attended, apparently. And um, Martin Dugiamis spoke of mobile Moodle a bit more. Mobile um, And we also had, um, well, from our side, when I say our side, Leo Gaggle and Stefan Schmidt and I presented me virtually then physically. Uh, at that environment, showing a range of different tools and things that they've been growing that, that fit into the Moodle plugin area. And on the way back to the airport, as I drove away or drove them back, I overheard Stefan speaking of uh, Colin Simpson from CIT's use of the Taser, sorry, the Luxy head worn camera with a whole range of. Um, vocational teachers in the trades area, and um, yeah, a little sound bite, seven, seven, seven minutes, it's up on the web. What were they doing with the taser headset? Sorry, um, Luxy, the Luxy headset. The, sorry, the Luxy headset, right? Luxy. Luxy. It looks like a, um, it's like a little lipstick cam that sort of hooks onto the side of glasses and. Uh, Bluetooth direct to your iPhone and live streaming to anybody else with FaceTime that's on your FaceTime environment. So I thought pretty cool uh, kind of connection. So I'm meeting with Colin in a couple of weeks and meeting with that whole group. See what they're up to. Hmm. I do. It's been around for a bit. The looksy. It's a, it's a matured that product. Is it? Uh, it's matured enough for the U.S. police to be pairing up with that. Uh, team and using it, yeah, in the field. Because mm -hmm. so. the last time it was basically it was a Bluetooth connection to your phone. Yeah, and, that's correct. And it was, you know, the idea, but it also had cache. So the idea is that it's continuously recording mm. uh, into the cache, and it's just a matter of when you hit stop because that then you've got this whole pre-recording that you've got. So the idea is you record everything and then yeah. just edit out what you don't want. Mm, mm. That, right, having a nice interesting talk there with Alison. <laughs> is that the one the British police are using as well, Alex? Uh, yes, yeah, Luxie's um, paired up with evidence.com. Yeah, so it's a bit of a consortium gig going on. Okay. Hi, Alison. Sorry? I missed that. Uh, we, we just wanted to order a cup of tea, too. <laughs> yeah, my mum is just kissing me goodnight. My mum is saying goodnight. See you in the morning. Night, mum. She's, she's gone night. She's gone now. We were wondering who that was. I thought she was somewhere a little late night dalliance there and during our podcast. <laughs> The spheres are overlapping. <laughs> so, I was just, I was just yes, interested uh, in, in your Freudian slip, though, Alex. Which one was that one? The taser. The taser cam? Yeah. Actually, it's not a slip at all. It's actually, there is a taser cam. Um, taser have brought out a um, head-worn camera that the police are using in many states in, the, in America. And the streamed video goes back to the car 
from the car back to base and it goes into a central repository called evidence.com. Um, I didn't really want to go down that route, but that, that particular camera is probably top of the range of those types of cameras, yeah. So there is a Tazar Flex, it's called. Again, it looks like a little lipstick cam, but instead of Bluetooth to a headset, it's actually a hard-worn DVR back to a hip, hip DVR, and then it goes back to a car. So, so wouldn't Asqua love that? I mean, if it went to that, if it went to the evidence bank, yeah, it should be just very, back to Asqua. Yeah, it's an incredibly rigorous. They could tap into all assessments going on at any time. Well, funny you mention that because that's that's <laughs> entirely what I'm interested in. Total <laughs> validation. That's exactly where I think it's going to head. Continuous validation. So it's a bit like. I think it's already there. there. <laughs> so yes, uh, apparently it's quite a rigorous repository. It collects all sorts of things. So um, yeah, Asqua repository would be nice. But they, they're going to have a unique student identifier. So if yes, you could they, just, they if you could get, if you, if you could get that, that, that bottom third thing Bill's got happening, <laughs> with your, with your name and your identity, and you just put that as your, your, your unique student identifier, then there would be no issues about e-assessment anymore. No, For, you know, and if you have your face on the ASQA database, facial recognition. Yep. Authenticated, please begin your assessment. Yep. Make Streamfolio popular everywhere. Oh, now. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's, That's very spooky. <laughs> I didn't do anything there. I don't know yeah, this is, is uh, if I could just pop in. This has been happening. We've been trialing um, Hangouts for quite a bit, period of time now in the schools and we're finding the same thing. We're getting these double logins. <laughs> and, and this is interesting because this is complete. Ours is a secure, you know, Northern Territory apps installation and domain. And so mm. that this is happening out in, you know, private um, domains as well too is pretty indicative that it's more of a Google issue than, you know, a domain mm -hmm. configuration. Yeah. So it doesn't have anything, nothing to do with keywords or keywords. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're talking about surveillance. <laughs> well, there we go. There goes Michael. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So, Bill, um, I'd like to hear more about you know your new job and what what's happening in the territory. Sure. Thanks. Um, listen, it's quite an exciting time. Um, there's a, a whole branch within the Department of Education up here called, uh, well, now called Teaching and Learning with uh, ICT, and part of its mandate is to, you know, push the emergent technology agenda um, in safe and controlled trials. And if the trial is successfully evaluated and measured against student learning, then it rolls out into a pilot. And if the pilot's successful, and there's uptake within the school system then it becomes an actual you know it can work its way to the standard operating environments um, and then full rollout so it's the the division I'm working in is doing that and Google uh, uh, a trial of Google Apps is one of the things underway um, uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on in games based learning as well um, yeah you know the usual Minecraft stuff happening in schools uh, 
that's pretty exciting. Um, we're still experimenting a fair bit with uh, Edmodo as you know an alternative to Facebook, you know, within the uh, K to 12 sector, and that's having a pretty strong uptake. The other part of my portfolio is Moodle, so now I'm Moodle man, you know, and uh, you know helping. Uh, I don't really have to deal with the technical uh, sides of Moodle. We, there's a team of people that do that, though. I find that half the time solving the teaching and learning pedagogies requires <laughs> untangling the technology and you know con <laughs> configuration and that. So yeah, so that's going on. So yeah, about mid-September, I left uh, Charles Darwin University and uh, joined up with the Department of Education, and really enjoying the uh, the change of um, you know focus. And uh, it's from my point of view, it's quite interesting, uh, you know, how open and and flexible and more innovative the school sector is. And I think it's because the schools have a lot of autonomy, um, you know, compared to in the university environment where. Um, you know the the whole lockdown on quality assurance and that is just so high that there's people really aren't you know willing to take the risks and try you know different things in those mm -hmm. environments at least my in my experience up here so what's the um, connectivity and infrastructure like in the remote in, in Aboriginal communities mm -hmm. now yeah it's uh, very dis it's still disappointing and um, it's satellite based, so we use a stars system, satellite connecting to you know a lot of the remote communities. Mm -hmm. um, the plan continues to be that there will be 20 hub communities in the Northern Territory that will be connected via fiber. Um, and so, I guess the idea there is is to kind of create a territory, you know, fiber network at least uh, that can service a lot of the smaller communities. But uh, other than that, it still remains, um, you know, a satellite-based system, and the ongoing dialogue is that just might not be good enough, and we we might need to do better. But when I was um, down in Canberra just over a year ago, um, you know, at the sort of regional Australia MBN forum, it, everybody was pretty much concluding that we'll live with that seven percent of the country that just doesn't get that accessibility. Just so happens that it's the same seven percent that are probably the most highly disadvantaged, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we relied on satellite when I was there. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. In 1982. Yeah. I can guarantee you that Bungalore community is probably still using a parabolic dish made of um, chicken wire and foam vegetable boxes. Yeah, so it's a long way to go on that agenda. There's no doubt about it, and um, you know it's going to be about finding more efficient technologies that can, you know, work. And we we make all these wonderful. Uh, we you know we we create bandwidth, but we gobble it up faster than we can actually mm. find innovative ways to use it because we just do the same thing only in higher resolution. You know. I think the issue with satellite is that even if you have high bandwidth, you still get latency simply because of the the distance that it travels from the satellite back to the um, back to the to the uh, receiver. It's just about the speed of light, and um, not much you can do about that. Or the latency in the in the electronics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in some ways that needs to be. Um, used for those communities because you know I guess my concern and you know it's a concern in our meeting this week Bill that um, 
there is a tendency to um, push push things onto remote communities rather than having enabling those communities to create um, learning um, you know, activities and content and opportunities for themselves. You know, in a way, not having good um, connectivity might, in fact, encourage that in a in a funny way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you know what I mean. I mean, when when I went to work, when I went to work on Melville Island, you know, there were Dick and John in the snow readers. And uh, you know, I think there is a risk that um, you know the, the types of content that will be pushed into those communities falls into the same um, same boat in a way. <laughs> we have a young visitor here. Hello. Um, I, I'll, I'll get to that, Robin. Um, I, can I just suggest something in the Google Hangouts that's a little different? Is that Whosoever microphone is making the loudest noise, that's the person who pops up on your screen. And eventually, after about 10 minutes of that, you get really fatigued looking at a Google Hangout. So it's really good protocol just to kill, mute your microphone uh, when, you're, when you're not talking. And it'll save uh, a lot of screen bounce and things like that. And it's what we've found out so far in the trials anyway. What do you do with the limitation of the nine uh, users? Has that been a barrier? Um, one of our workarounds for that is often we're connecting rooms. So what we do is we set up, get people to set up a system where you know one of the um, the video panels is a group or of of people, and that. Mm. So that's one of the ways that we kind of work around it. So it becomes you know nine large rooms of people meeting is is sure. <laughs> quite adequate. But um, I mean, how useful is more than nine? You know, video oh, tiles, yeah. really, you know. Um, I, I think an additional thing would be if, you know, on my wish list would be at least that you could listen in. You know, like the, I know the live class and Wimba tools have that toll-free call-in so that you can actually listen in. And uh, you don't necessarily need to be using, you know, video bandwidth, but you can still participate in a class but environment. I don't think you can do that with Google+. Plus. I mean, I, I think we, we, we could have viewers... Um, more than one viewer. I mean, they, they did the Obama um, interview on uh, Google Hangouts, and presumably there they had thousands of viewers. So I think you can do that. Well, I guess, you know, one of the most obvious workarounds is exactly what you're doing, where you're doing a Hangout on air, and you can stream it and embed it on multiple locations and sites concurrently. So, mm. you know, but, yeah. Does DEC have a uh, web conferencing platform like Illuminate or Connect or anything like that? Yep, Adobe Connect is uh, there. We have uh, the IDL React system. Um, that's the main one that it, that reaches into the indigenous communities. So I don't know if you're familiar with the React software. It's uh, no. you know, been around for a while. It's kind of a homegrown NT um, solution. Um, so those are the two main video platforms, and then I, of course I mentioned the um, the link, you know, which is really just point to point, though. So it's two people, and it's mm -hmm. quite limited, you know, within the uh, Dex domain and to Dex staff, not students. So 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so why why explore Google um, Hangouts? What's what's the business need there when you've already got Connect and you've invested in that? Uh, why why is it an experiment or innovation ex exploration? What's what's really at work there? Well, that's a really good question, and that's a you know the thing that we're looking at constantly is you know why would you do it? Isn't it just redundant because you already have these other uh, things there. I, I think it's within the context of um, the full suite of Google applications um, that uh, you know so the trial of course in fact there's a fantastic promotional video I can send you guys a link on that so you can really see you know overall what we're doing but uh, the Google trial um, rollouts really more about you know how it impacts classrooms the entire suite of applications so that you know where collaboration and sharing is really you know, important an important part of the process. Um, that's a lot of the you know the rationale and case for experimenting with the environment. There's a lot of discussion about the fact that we do have these other solutions um, in place, but they're quite costly to support and maintain. Um, and uh, you know, these in the cloud-based um, environments and that you know can can offload some of that strain on our own server systems and. Um, that's you know a big part of the, the discussion that's going on, um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, perhaps we might uh, move over to you, Michael, and do a bit of a roundup with uh, roundup with you. All right, just unmuted my microphone. Now, before I say anything else, I'm really interested in what you said, Bill, because Alison and I and Mike Seafang had a Google Hangout some time back, and it was just stuck on the one voice all the time. It didn't switch. Normal tools like this, whoever's talking, it switches. But I'm just seeing me. Even when I mute my, mute my mic, I just see me. I see you guys in the smaller windows below, but the central big window is me, and that's what's going through onto Google, isn't it? I think yes, that's right. But we're seeing whoever is speaking. Whoever's speaking, it's like VC does that. Whoever speaks gets to be on the on the maximised. Mm -hmm. So that's not happening to you, Michael. Michael's talking to himself. Sorry, yeah, I, no, I'm not seeing any change. I just see me, and this is and, and the recording. I was the one who initiated the hangout, and I was the entire video. Even though Mike was there, Alison was there. Actually, remember Alison? It got stuck on Mike for about thirty minutes too. It was not chopping, swapping, depending on who was talking. So, have you come across this, Bill? Thanks. Just unmuting the microphone here, uh, Michael. I think what what happens is um, if you have accidentally clicked on a tile, one of the bottom tiles. For example, if I click on Allison right now, I force Allison into my large window. Hi, Allison, and hi, Allison's daughter. <laughs> okay, but if I click under my name, or sorry, I click on the main center. How do I get rid of that again? Forget how that actually. How it actually happened, but 
Uh, have to look at how you uh, you you set that up. Like right now, I'm looking at myself, but it's because I've clicked on my own tile down below. All right, so that's what it is. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I now look. I'm looking at you, which is better than looking at me. There you go. <laughs> anyway, now, I, all right. I'm curious if we all chose Stefan, if then what he sees on his screen is what we end up having, but. Um, I don't know how to stop. Once you've clicked on a bottom tile, I haven't discovered yet how to turn it off. It just seems to go off automatically after a while, and I go into this, you know, whatever is on the mode. But I reckon it's a configuration setting that you could set up in your own video settings. Okay. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd just like to... I don't know how much... I'll just talk briefly about what I did earlier today, and it was... Obviously not on my radar to talk about tonight because I hadn't been there yet. But I just spent two hours with a, a bunch of mostly young people, and I mean, uh, you know, 35 and under, at a NetSquared meeting. And it was a four-city hookup, Adelaide, Melbourne, Auckland, Wellington. And it's people who meet on a regular basis to basically talk about things like reducing global poverty, about increasing money going to charity, about increasing the numbers of people who are involved in charity, about creating websites that create collaboration for problem solving, about creating websites which have a purpose none other than to improve the world, and it just went on and on and on. Just kind of a dozen examples of people in those four cities doing technology for the sole purpose of, of improving the world. And it was just awesome and inspiring. And I just thought the world, well, there's a lot of people in that younger generation who, I don't know, they're living a very different life to us and, they, and they're, they're putting it into actions. And it was just really inspiring. So that's what I want to say right now. Strangely enough, Michael, I, I said the same thing on the train this morning. I, I said I think, I think there's a political shift. Uh, I don't think that... Um, the uh, official that like government parties have acknowledged it yet, but I think there's a political shift happening, and and uh, you know I I think we're going to see some big changes in the next five years in terms of politics and parties and and, and things like that. I think it's you know I think there's a change. Well, we said that when Rudd got in. I mean, the Kevin 07 came in with the tide of uh, young people. It was believed that there were a lot of young, idealistic people that came in with the Rad 07 uh, election. And, and they're all young yuppies. It's <laughs> totally different. No, what Michael's talking about is kind of grassroots, mm. um, you know, more community-based focused mm. interests. And, and, you know, we haven't seen that for a while, I know. It's interesting, Michael. I, I, I'm glad to see you involved in it. Well, it kind of forces your hand a little bit, doesn't it? Because you go along and you see these things and you think, my God, here's a really good thing to do. What am I going to stop doing to make time for it? And you can't argue that it's a really good thing to do. Cognitive surplus, then. Anyway. Yeah. Just um, And isn't it you know, how at our recent... Um, that long conversation we had a few weeks ago where one of the topics that day was charity and how we're all a little bit 
pissed off with the way that charitable organisations are now kind of assaulting you and making you feel guilty, almost held to sort of emotional ransom if you don't pay up. And these people in this session today are very aware of that approach and certainly not like that at all. I mean, they represent a different way of doing charity. Talking about a different way, uh, I had a couple of them cost me today and they were using iPads, brandishing iPads. <laughs> Brand <laughs> what, they hit you with it? <laughs> oh, well, they sign you up to the charity on the iPad, but it was interesting. They, yeah. I'll just, I'll, 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 I hope to do a little blog post about this to give you a list of things that look, they're really worth looking at. A lot of really interesting initiatives with, again, just totally positive goals. And one of them, Alex, a company called Squareweave, who also seemed to have an offshoot called Charity Engine with a really engaging young speaker called Will said the next big industry is data extraction and expression. And I thought of you, Alex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being in the middle of big data land, yes. Yeah, um, big data. They just said big data is the... Because people are realising... And, and that's what he was talking about. They're getting data on when people donate to charity, like what happened in the 10 minutes preceding. Mm -hmm. And where they spent it, and how they spent it, and and like all this other kind of contextual stuff. And he said, "We, it's limitless, mm. and we're now starting to use that in planning." So it's not assaulting people with iPads, but it's it's calculating. Yeah, and they're not calculating; they they're just examining the data mm. around what makes people shift and give to charity, and just translate that to a million other contexts because he was saying the data's there and available and we're just now beginning to understand how to exploit it. Mm. Now, and I've heard many charities are actually designing apps that are geolocative so they can hook into the Esri or other spatial engines so that they can map where people contribute, um, where they essentially could be potentially accosted in, in a more vulnerable position. Um, how often they are, how often they interact with the agency through the app itself. I've just come back from Spatial at Gov conference in Canberra here and it's, it's pretty amazing what they are now employing, particularly government agencies in relation to people's um, whereabouts and what they're interacting with at that point in time, including um, con contributions to Facebook as you drive. That's a big one. As you drive? Yeah. So as you drive your car, and if your coin, if you're say posting something in a social media engine, it's actually tracking each particular attribute of packet that it sends over that distance. So it's possible to to prove that's these new laws that have come out about you can't actually touch the phone now, um, as part of your um, you know your interaction with a mobile device on the road. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm, I'm aware that many charities here are delving into the data chain of the personal data for that very, you know, the reasons that you stated there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, speaking of data, that's something that I've just written up a report this week on this advent of data journals, which are now starting to see their way into the higher ed sector where 
not only do you have a manuscript paper that has a digital object identifier, so if you share it across the web it's tracked and traced, but also that the open data web allows you to publish the data set with the journal itself and that both of them count towards your H, H ranking, which Bill would know all about. So data set journals are uh, set to um, be the next big thing, particularly in the big data space. So what is H ranking? Essentially it's an index according to which journals that you contribute your publications to. It depends on which each journal has a ranking, has, a, has an impact score and that impact score um, contributes towards your um, value as an academic. Also organizations okay. have their own H ranking and it's about how, um, how competitive um, and how um, exclusive you are according to that ranking. Bill, have you got anything to add to that? No, no, I, I think you've it nailed it. It all explains why I'm not in higher ed anymore, is it? <laughs> it sounds Yeah, it was uh, not, not so long ago the, uh, there was an actual A-star journal ranking, so they had an A journal, B journal, C journal, and it sounded like a great idea, but of course then people only submitted to A-star journals, so it, you know, it just glutted everything up, and the turnaround times on any articles were getting into the two or three years before they would actually look at your research that you wrote about by that time in our particular field. You did. Sorry, it's done and dusted, you know, we're onto something new. So that didn't last too long, but I think the, the interesting thing about where you're going uh, with that comment, uh, Alex, is also just about the other really important thing is how many people cite mm. your uh, your work, so citation mm -hmm. volume and, and whether they really see it. And it's it's a very interesting uh, gauge because uh, it's really about having online identity and you know a lot of academics very are beginning so. to are, there's a switch around where they're starting to see oh gee maybe this digital identity and online identity has some value, mm. but. Five years ago, I presented uh, a talk at CDU uh, with researchers, and I challenged them that uh, basically I was arguing that you know uh, Wikipedia is is the ultimate in in peer referencing. You know, not mm -hmm. it's not just two or three privileged people mm -hmm. editing your stuff and, and commenting, but you can actually get edited out by thousands of you know knowledgeable people. And anyway, mm -hmm. and then we talked about online identity, and I was hugely poo pooed, you know. But now it's uh, you know. It's, it's uh, all coming around. Well, that index is called it's called alt metrics. So things like Mendeley, Zotero, uh, Facebook, uh, Delicious, all of the various engines we know um, provide a contribution back to these data, these journals to show how many times, how many likes, how many citations, and so on. So when you actually publish your publish your article. You submit it into a into a, a recognised repository, and it has a digital object identifier attached to it, a bit like a code. So when that article is cited elsewhere, it tells the journals that that particular article has been cited elsewhere, and it, and it increases the count. And it's a bit like, um, yeah, it's a track and trace system that is it's a, it's a data valence system that's very very complex and and very clever. Well, it's all it's, it's all about analytics, isn't it? And you know, every service yes, is providing at you know. One of the questions you asked earlier, Stefan, about you know why you know the Google Apps thing and that it's you know some of the powerful analytics that you know to see how, what what 
uh, processes and activities and that that you're doing in your classroom, you know, using Google um, is actually getting engagement and being able to measure that sort of thing. It's uh, we're just just an aside, you know, with the band I play with, you know, we're heavily involved in some online spaces, and the ones that win out in the end are the ones that have the analytics that you know we mm -hmm. can get a report. So if I put thirty dollars into an ad campaign on a song. Um, I want to know how many sites, how many click-throughs, how many downloads, and uh, you know, so it's it's there and it's real, and people who are are trying to take advantage of it. Mm. There's some very clever journals um, that combine all of that together. So they have an overlay journal, like an abstract and a describer, and they have the manuscript paper itself, and then they have the data set, which is uh, Creative Commons and open for you to use the data itself. Um, all combined, plus all of those other altmetrics engines showing all of the amount of times it's been cited, the amount of times it's been downloaded, the amount of times it's been liked, all in the one page. So it's, it's like a mashup of everything all together. Now, folks, we haven't heard from Alison. Academic cookies. She's happily typing. Best muted. I had to find my mic and my microphone. I I I, I think um, that uh, tracking and numbers are something that we've lived with for a long, 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 long time. Uh, it's not unique. It's not unusual. But like anything in the world, it can allow people to do bad things, um, and it can allow things people to do really powerful things and, and quite utopian things. And from an educational perspective, it will actually um, mean there's a lot of rock, what do they call it, Look, looking under rocks. So they'll look under a rock and not really like what they find, and they'll have to learn how to deal with that. But at the same time, hopefully it will actually allow people to service their clients or their customers, which is their learners, in a better way. So I think numbers, as, as a black and white kind of numbers person, I think numbers will actually provide, with the, the way technology, can, we can interact with technology and technology can actually help predict what we can do with technology and where we are. Um, I think numbers can uh, actually help, but at the same time, it will it will open up a lot of can of worms, a lot of can of worms people won't know how to deal with, and a lot of can of worms that people won't want to know about. So I think there's like anything in life, there'll be the yin and the yang. So what are you up to, Alison? In terms of learning, learner or learning analytics? No, generally. What have you been oh, doing? Um, that's a good question. No, a, a range of different things. I, I, I've um, coming off the back of the stuff that Michael and I did around designing learning in the digital age. I've been doing a lot, a lot of uh, looking into that and doing a bit of research around that. Um, I've been doing work around e-portfolios, believe it or not, and working out what some spaces might be for me there. Um, a lot of work around um, digital capability or business developing businesses 
a space business space that allows businesses to use the, the online and internet to um, do what they do business so digital capability doing it smarter so lots of different stuff but um, yeah I, I'd love to have a little bit more time to go down the learning analytics path I, path, I think at this stage um, the universities who generally have the most money in, in Australia in terms of education um, are starting to tap into that space but very much around timetabling and budgeting and staffing and not necessarily around learner analytics uh, because I think it opens up too many cans of worms. I think poor old vet sector, it, it's, it will be a strange space because things like in the school sector where you've got NAPLAN, there was a, a report or a, 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 a research bit of work came out this week testing the test. Um, is NATLAN, what's it all about kind of stuff. So I think the school sector's, you know, cottoned onto the number thing and known how they can use it as a stick and surveillance and scare the living users out of people. I think the higher sector think that, that, that they'll be able to use it in terms of, um, yeah, you know, economising and uh, the account, keeping the accountants happy. happy. But whether we can use it in terms of helping learners progress, I think the vet sectors, I don't know where the sector, vet sector will sit with that. I think it will take them a little while. They're just cottoning on onto the word MOOC at this stage and thinking it's something <laughs> worth looking at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I take that um, point, Alison, about the anxiety that's being raised from the testing regimes and the learners are subject to it more than anyone. Um, you know, the, the amount of the amount of reporting and testing is berserk in general. So, right, Alison, once the vet sector wakes up to that, MOOCs actually equals openness. They'll they'll lose interest in it. I'm not sure. We, we may have lost. She was amazingly she was on a 3G connection. Oh. <laughs> I know that that it's in, that, in, for all of this video to be streaming down this kind of ordinary. Um, it's it, we're not even on 3G. Like it's a 3G connection, but it's it's not pulling down on 3G. It's pulling down on something called H. God forbid, whatever that means. <laughs> Look, I think um, H. H. That's what it says. Not H. E. H. Yeah, I mean, normally no, use edge. I don't know what H. you've got there. H. H. <laughs> it's hot. So, hot, maybe. Yeah, H for hot. Maybe it's the temperature. I, I think that I think universities universities are going to struggle with the openness of a MOOC and open education and so forth. I think though some of the um, dual sector universities. So I was speaking with some people from a dual sector university today, I think that they might help push that along from a vet sector in that that, that they will st that they they've got some funding from the National Vet Learning Strategy, so they're going to put some of their outputs onto something like iTunes. So for them that's being open. Um, and you know, for them that is a big step. I know it's not um, it's not Wikiversity, it's not Wikipedia, but for them that is a big step. So I think some of the dual sectors, sorry, excuse me. Some of the dual sectors um, may start to push that along, um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, open educational re resources aren't new. 
No. So for some of them, some of them will do well at it, and especially if, especially if they're in a marketplace that's it is quite um, thin. Any, oh, not thin, the opposite. You know, but the, the, there's a lot of people already in the market. The content's already out there. Like when I needed to find new content for a unit of competence, I used to just put the unit of competence and just see what else anybody else had available online, and then kind of contextualizing it, obviously. Um, for the work that we needed to do, so it's it's not unusual for people to have some of their information. And I mean, the last time I was teaching was in in 2007, so it would have been prior to that. People did put their content online in different kinds of ways. So I think it it will be there. Maybe there's just different terms for it. Um, I think ASQA's come going to come in, and um, you know they have to get 5,000 training organisations, probably down to about two-thirds of that. And mm -hmm. they'll have to do it, obviously, um, very legitimately and very politically correctly. So, and I think that, um, you know, the, the Victorian funding model will help that. And some of them will be tapes that will be going in that process. So, you know, it's changing times for everybody, including schools. Universities, in fact. Yep. Open Gov, open data, open education. So if you create, you have to publish it. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one thing too, just you know, around the sharing and, and what you were on to there, Alison, about finding, you know, you've, you've got to teach something, you know, within a a topical area, and with the national curriculum going, New, uh, New South Wales has launched this uh, environment uh, called Plane, P-L-A-N-E. You can Google it and find out about it. But we've just done an evaluation of it. And it's a pretty phenomenal uh, concept. Uh, it's it's basically an environment for assemb assembling all of those kind of assets and learning objects and that, and and kind of traversing it in kind of a games-based environment. You know, you, you score points, you get your pilot's license, and stuff like that. You know, while while you're going through it, but uh, that's that's what I'm seeing. That's kind of interesting is the assembling, and I'm seeing a bit of a race on that because I I see Educational Services Australia, you know, trying to get stuff out. You know, obviously Acara is still really pushing, you know, to uh, put out you know pack illustrations of packages and and all of that stuff going on. So it, it's it's pretty similar, but perhaps uh, you know some of the data. Um, you know, mining that uh, Alex is talking about, you know, will make that work a lot better for people. Because half the time is, even with the old vet structure, it was really hard to find stuff, even though it was, they mm. tried to make it easy for you. We'll have a look at, um, where's our, where was the um, TAFE New South Wales's repository? Stefan, where's that disappeared to? Aquila. Uh, no, the learning object repository. Tail. Tail has been replaced by Aquila. Aquila. Or the learning LRR, Learning Resource Repository, again replaced by Aquila. Okay, so can it can anyone log into it or is it a no. 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 Although uh, having said that, um, some of us lobbied hard and if you can put a resource up and make it open on Aquila. Um, oh, good. but not very discoverable, it just means that it's just there. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not searchable. <laughs> Sorry, Alison, there isn't one. The camera follows you out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> it's Google's new innovation. 
I noticed that Blackboard um, has got into open course site, and you can launch your free MOOC today <laughs> from the front page. Teach open courses or MOOCs. That's what it says on the front of course sites by Blackboard. Definitely, there's certainly the, uh, all the talk at the moment, isn't it, MOOCs? Hmm. I've got a recording back in 2005, I think, with um, George Seaman, Stephen Downs, Tamu, and a few others, kind of talking very avidly about the inception of that that sort of concept, and um, it seems to have gone a long way. Yes, well, we we watched an interesting um, webcast from Edgy Course Conference by Sharky and. Uh, Clay Shirky. Oh, Clay Shirky. Uh, I don't know why I called him Sharky, but anyway, Clay Shirky. And uh, he was quite dismissive of MOOCs in some ways. He, he said, look, I know I know we've all been all been prepped to come up here and mention MOOCs, but that's it. I'm not gonna talk about them anymore. That's quite good. I think you actually steered us towards that article, Steph. Thank you. It was a good. I only just read the um, the bit at the end where they were interviewing each other, but they were great questions and great answers. Mm. Oh yes, see, that was the Clay Shirky and the uh, Don Tapscott. Tap Tapscott, yeah, yeah. Did you see the um, the uh, Don Tapscott and Clay Shirky's? Kind of um, face-off they had, big discussion on stage. That's Quite interesting. Yeah, that's what we were just talking about. Oh, referring to that, yeah. Sorry. Mm. Mm. Have so uh, I was just going to ask: uh, Has uh, Michael Fallen uh, done the road show down in uh, in your guys' areas at all? I think he might have got to Canberra, and then Michael Fallen. If you don't know, he's uh, the big Canadian. Um, guy who specializes in effective change management. So he did a big workshop up here, uh, you know, in all the schools and, and that were involved in that. Did that make its way down to you guys' area? So no, no, no. Can you pop nope. a link to his link to him uh, in the in the chat? I'll tag him for the for the uh, session and check him out. Yeah. That sounds like something I'd be interested in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll pop something mm. in there. What was his name again? Mark Pullen. I'm putting I'm putting in the chat right now. It's Michael Fullen, and uh, to, to be to be quite honest, uh, he's a fellow Canadian. He comes out of uh, the Ontario Institute for Secondary Education in Toronto, and and has done a lot of things and quite politically charged, you know, with uh, um, some pretty big agendas in Canada's educational sector. But uh, it was a lot of it was pretty common sense stuff, you know. It was uh, he, he was he's advocating again. Um, the dual process of um, strategies being very thin uh, in, in a downward direction but really fat going up so you can influence the people you need to. Um, talking about, um, he's, he seems, I think it's a personal stage he's at in his life but he's completely over vision statements, writing them then cramming, cramming them down people's throats and expecting that that's going to uh, result in cha organizational change. He's, He's more on to let's get down to the brass tacks, do something, have a success, and then see if that impacts vision. You know, um, more in a self-reinforcing cycles. So. Mm. Yeah. 
Michael, yeah, can you tell us a bit about Converge? Uh, I can. I was just. I think my yeah my video my video my audio is on. Um, look, the fact that Converge happened, given the climate in Victoria, I thought was fairly impressive. People were very well behaved. They didn't publicly complain in sessions. In most, session. of the, <laughs> most of the social conversation, a lot of the social conversation revolved around the dreadful things that are happening. But look, Converge was there. It was still a very vibrant event. It was full, had 300 plus delegates. And you know, for someone in our position, the, the, the longer you're in this game, the harder it is to go to a conference and get stuff that's worthwhile. So I'll just mention the, the one presentation that did present some interesting stuff for me, and it would be for you too, Steph. They um, Box Hill TAFE have quite clearly got a whole management approach to change, and it's systemic change. It's bit by bit across the entire organisation, and it's kind of dawning on me now because I remember talking to Box Hill four or five years ago, and they were interested in these things that I wasn't particularly, but I realise now that they were after long-term change. So it was nice to hear an organisation kind of declare proudly, this is a top-down management-driven approach. And one little thing that they've got with Moodle, they've got a guy in-house, some nerd, who is able to write Moodle scripts that query Moodle courses down to a very fine level. For example, are there discussion forums? Are they used? Does the lecturer use them? How does the student use them? Are there survey tools? Are there wikis are used? Like, it, it can track, and here's, you know, bigger data again, every single element of a Moodle course. And they publish what they call an interactivity index. And it's the whole institute sees it. So everybody in the institute can see which work groups are the most interactive in the way they use Moodle. And an outcome of this is that work groups who are down the bottom approach professional development and say, well, how can we get ourselves up at the table? Yeah. We don't want to be down the bottom. And I thought, well, that's a really neat little strategy. The sticks and carrot routine. Yeah. But really, apart from that, uh, there was an engaging keynote by a guy called Tim Longhurst, who apparently has worked with the federal government, works with a company called Key Messages, so he's one of these hotshot, you know, high-flying, dynamic speakers, futurist. but, you know, futurist. But you, me, Alex, could have, you know, I mean, it's the same stuff that we talked about four years ago, to be honest. And it was a good talk, but... Look, he's, he's pitching it to a, a wide audience. But um, that's about it for Converge for me. The Box Hill thing stood out. I guess maybe one more thing. I went particularly to the Big Blue Button session, the open source virtual learning or virtual classroom tool to see whether or not that was a valid or a viable alternative to Blackboard Collaborate, who seem intent on certainly chopping off all the small small users. And the answer is no. Big blue button is still at least a year or two away from being from being a viable alternative. And everybody agreed that wasn't my opinion. We could just see that's the case. Mm. So that was Converge.
Mm. Oh, well, there's some interesting stuff come out. I followed, I followed it on Twitter. There was some interesting stuff come out of there. I've got some interesting links, and there was some great discussions going on. So, look good. Yeah, they're good like that. The way they organise them, and that I mean, the, the Victorian. You know, there's enough people in Victorian vet who are reasonably wired and active on social media. So, yeah, there will be like a parallel conference running in at the same time that will provide some interesting stuff. And I certainly wrote lots of notes of, for things to follow up. Uh, they never, they never podcast uh, or record anything with Converge, and I always think that's a bit disappointing, given the number what? of given the resources no, they've got. You suggest it to them, Steph. <laughs> I have in the past. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't go to Converge. I fear that they might ask me to do it. <laughs> or I might be compelled to do it. <laughs> I Openly. I just don't go. Yeah. No, not really. I actually uh, have thought about going this year, actually. Because we, we, we don't have a, uh, uh, you know, an Envils conference here. There used to be a, an e-learning conference that was associated with the framework each year here. So I didn't feel the need to go to the, the Victorian one. But uh, given that we've not got one here anymore, um, then the Victorian one looks like it's sort of become the sort of, you know, national conference in that regard. It is. It is the national vet event. Western Australia is the only other state that still has a, a one-dayer, but the Western Australian event was never, well, it was very local and Converge has always been good. I mean, we had E-Days here in Adelaide. I think E-Days was a magnificent conference. I think E-Days and Converge stood head and shoulders above the rest. And Converge, yeah, they still waved the flag. Let's hope so for another couple of years. Mm. Mm. Was there a presentation about the new uh, VET, open, open VET uh, um, re repository and that, that's been spearheaded by eWorks and Rodney Sparks and that? Was there any, any, any talk yeah, about that? Yeah, there was, but I didn't go to it because we'd kind of had the, the insider's session yeah. some months ago and it's been approved and it's going ahead. So I didn't think I was going to learn anything new, but yes, there was a presentation. And for the okay. benefit of others, I mean, it does actually sound, in theory, it sounds fantastic. So Rodney Spark, you know, eWorks veteran from Victoria, eLearning manager from way, way back, and Joe Norbury have been working on this project, and they really want to, it stemmed from, getting all the resources from all those toolboxes which were produced for 15 years that cost far more than justified the actual level of use. So they're breaking down the toolboxes into what they call assets and this is right down to an image or a bit of audio and they'll be all available in a repository. Every single item in there will be Creative Commons everything that's added to that repository by anybody in the vet sector will be by default Creative Commons or you can't put it in there. They're going to try and develop a community around this content with 
ranking and liking and you know like a front page of ongoing news like Facebook sort of thing so there'll be all activity around the site will be very public in the way they speak about it so I'll be able to look at the front page and see Stephen Ridgway just downloaded a piece of audio called blah blah and tagged this and so yeah using community processes well tested by social media they're going to wrap it around a repository of vet content that's all Creative Commons licensed so it sounds great but let's see what it looks like when it's there hey I'll show you what it looks like it's in the in the chat Oz goal is something a bit different mm -hmm, but still comes under the same licensing of government data framework Okay. Yeah, well, the Ozgold initiative is a good one too. Mm. We had a talking today at a webinar that I was hosting with the um, with a couple of data librarians and data scientists, and um, they that's the push. This is where it's heading. I detect yeah. some scepticism there from Alison in the text chat. <laughs> I just, I just think that that in all their um, good intentions, the same as they were hoping, Lawn would do something similar. The Learning Object Repository Network, its predecessor, proposed by Harriet Wakelam in about 2010, um, around breaking it down beyond learning objects down to assets. I think that in good, their good intentions are certainly there, but. It's wrapped around too many politics, just wrapped around too many politics, and um, the Ausgol is the um, Creative Commons plus one or two maybe now additional licenses added on to Creative Commons. It's something that's been around for for a little while now, and will eventually filter down to most um, government organisations, of which the National Ready Learning Strategy is placed between but because it's it, it's yeah I think for whatever they're going to try and do it work it might work okay but they there's just too much political they don't have then they don't necessarily have the IT power that would be needed for the, the mandate that they would like to do and as soon as the funding's finished which you know maybe this year maybe next year maybe the year after the whole effort will be gone, just like it has been in Lawn. But I think the Ausgoals probably are more of a way to go, and that's obviously mandated for government organisations, which would only f affect what um, less than 10% of training organisations. But it may lead the way for you know what is appropriate practice in terms of managing content. And we can't declare our work um, CC BY because we can't forfeit our moral rights in Australia. So we have to revert to the 3.0 unported. So that makes some connections a little not neat. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, on that note, I think we're, we're at um, 9.46 now, so we're, we're well over the hour. So I think we should uh, we should wind it up, the formal part of the podcast, and uh, 
anyway, I'd like to thank thank everyone. If anyone's got any closing comments, um, you might want to add them now. But um, I think I think we should wind it up formally. We can carry on informally afterwards, off the record. But uh, watch out for Wade Finnegan's live stream. Yeah, it's great to see you, Bill. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll make it happen. Yeah, uh, good connecting again with you guys. I know Alex and I've got a head out because we've got another uh, hour of chatting we've got to do. Uh, but uh, it's been nice to hear everybody's thoughts and catch up and uh, really appreciate it. Fabulous. Okay, good night, everyone. Yeah, and thanks, Steph and thanks, all. Robin, thanks, Stefan. See you soon, folks. Bye. Good night.